Well, welcome. Sorry about the AC, heat, whatever we're lacking in here for it to be hot. We tried to open the door between services, but it was already getting hotter outside. And so next week we're going to start handing out fans like a good old Southern Baptist church. So um, be looking for those in the foyer. Uh, Let me go ahead and pray for us. I realize we just prayed, but I need to pray for me. And then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word. Thank you for this book of John that we've been going through over the last almost nine months now. Um, Lord, we thank you for the resurrection, which we're going to study today. Pray that you'd speak through me. In your name, amen. On August 26th, 1727, in a little town or a little church in Central Europe, a group of people got together for a prayer service. And according to those who were in attendance, obviously none of us were, but according to those who were in attendance, the Lord showed up in a mighty way and a revival broke out. And obviously revival means different things to different people. It's viewed in different ways. But for these followers of Christ, their lives would never be the same. All right, for starters, this prayer service began a spirit of prayer among these people. And they started a movement where they were going to pray. And this, we see this occasionally here in today's society. But they were going to pray, have one person pray every hour, 24 hours a day. <clears throat> and there was, it was a small group of people, uh, probably less than 50 people. So obviously they were praying probably every two to three days. They were praying for an hour. Um, and this would catch on and would catch on in their families and their kids and their extended families. And before long, this... This movement went on for over 100 years with these people, where they prayed every hour of every day for over 100 years, which is really hard to fathom. Um, By 1960, this little group had sent out 300 missionaries. Little tiny group of people had sent out 300 missionaries. And that was really the genesis of their prayer. That was the focus of their prayer was, Lord, how can we be used by you to reach this world? And they sent those missionaries out to every corner of the known world. Um, And they had this one phrase that fueled their mission. Obviously the Bible and the Lord and their prayer, but they had one phrase, kind of an extra or an external biblical phrase, if you will. And the phrase was this. It was, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. All right, read that again. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Essentially saying, and obviously I wasn't there, I don't know exactly what they meant, but we can read through and kind of speculate based on that phrase, what what the point they were trying to make. Essentially they're saying, may we all live, live our lives in such a way where Jesus is magnified. May we never stay silent about his suffering. May the reward of our lives, what we do with our lives, be reflective of what he did on the cross. May we point people to him every step we take, everywhere we go, whether we're on a a boat sailing across the world, whether we're just in our little village where we are in Central Europe, may we always magnify Christ. And it's pretty powerful words, even for us today as you read through them. We've been talking the last few weeks about the cross and the pain and the suffering that Christ endured on our behalf. And wouldn't it be sad if those who knew about the cross way back in the biblical times and the resurrection and the fact that they saw Jesus rise again, if they had kept it to themselves. 
Like that, that would be a It'd be pretty painful for us today, right? If they had kept it to themselves, if they had not told the world, sacrificed their lives to tell the world of what they had seen. As we open to John 20 this morning, um, you, you really, if you just were to read it, you didn't know any other context around scripture, it'd be really easy to wonder if this little offshoot of Judaism would ever even survive. All right, there were no riots when Jesus died. No mass marches of protest when he was killed. His followers who remained had scattered. They'd hidden themselves from all the authorities outside this area of Israel, outside Palestine. No one really even knew who Jesus was. I mean, if you went to Rome when Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, if you went to Rome and stopped the average person on the street, hey, do you know who Jesus is? They probably didn't know who he was. It was, you know, most of it was contained to, to the area of Israel. Um, and most people, even in Israel, probably assumed that he was dead. They'd seen him hang on a cross, right? They'd watched him taken off the cross. They had seen the soldier spear his side. No one survived crosses. So they had, they had seen him take him down, put him in a grave, all right? And what the thing is, the problem is, they didn't know he was alive. And slowly, Jesus began to appear to certain people, and the word, the word spread. And they began to testify to what they had seen. All right, as we drop into John chapter 20, we've been going through John, as I mentioned, for almost nine months now. We preach verse by verse, and as we've been preaching through John, we've arrived at John chapter 20. Last week, took the first part of the resurrection. Um, and as we come into the upper room where all these disciples are gathered, at this point, most of them have not seen the risen Christ. And they can't quite wrap their minds around the idea that he's risen from the dead. They've been told by Mary, they've been told by a couple people who have actually seen him, that he rose. Mary just burst into the room and she goes, hey, I saw Jesus and they're not buying it. Okay, the last thing they expect is a resurrection. And we can say that, I would think, with certainty, because if they expected a resurrection, they would all be sitting there celebrating and waiting for Jesus to walk in. And that's not what was happening. They were scared. They weren't celebrating. They were huddled in a room, probably the upper room where they had the Last Supper. They were huddled in a room and they were terrified. All right, you remember from last week, Jesus comes out of the grave, comes out of the grave at dawn on the day he rose. And before we jump into John 20, I'm just going to give you a really quick background to lead us into John 20. So Luke gives a little more detail on this and he records for us the women in the morning arriving at the tomb. They found the tomb empty. They found the stone rolled away. His grave clothes are lying there, if you remember. And in Luke 24, 4, it says, while they were perplexed about this, like, okay, what's doing with the stone? What's the deal with the clothes? Why is the tomb empty? While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them, these were angels, in dazzling apparel. Okay, I, don't, I can only let you imagine what dazzling apparel looks like. It probably wasn't 80s disco clothes, but it's dazzling apparel. This is heavenly apparel. The ladies are scared to death. And the angel looks at them and this is what the angel says. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. So they leave and they run back and they tell the disciples and in Luke 24 now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with him who told these things to the apostles. And I think the important thing for us to realize is these were all very reputable women. Like they were well trusted. Let me say it that way. The disciples knew them. They, were just, they, walked with the, they walked with Jesus. They walked with the other disciples. So they knew who all of these ladies were. And these ladies come back and go, he is not here. He's risen. And even the disciples in the upper room were like, no. 
Like we, we, give, we give a lot of grief to doubting Thomas here in a little bit, but they didn't really believe either. All right, verse 11 says, But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stoop, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So Peter takes off, he runs to the tomb, he looks in, he sees nothing but linen clothes. We have no idea what Peter thought. None of the gospel writers really tell us what's going through his mind. But Luke says he went home marveling. All right, now later in the day, Jesus walks with two disciples. We can read about that in a different gospel. It's the road to Emmaus. All right, there's two disciples. It's not part of the 12, but he walks with two, and he walks with them on this journey. And they're sad. They're leaving Jerusalem. Their Messiah has been crucified. They don't know what to expect. They don't know he's risen from the dead. And they're, they're just confused. They're sad. In verse 24, 15, it says, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So they're walking. They're talking. This is probably midday on that first day. Jesus has appeared to a few people. Now he's appearing to these disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're walking down. And literally what Jesus is doing, I don't know why he did this, but it's pretty cool. He's walking through the Old Testament prophecies. And he's explaining to them why, in fact, he is the Messiah. Because there were all these prophecies of old that were pointing to the Messiah. So that's essentially what he's doing. He's walking through the Old Testament. All right? And when they get to where they're going... Jesus gives the impression he's going to keep walking. And they say, well, come on in for dinner. Come on and join us for dinner. So Jesus comes in in verse 30 of Luke 24. It says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. We could probably preach three sermons on that one verse. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, those who were with them, gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told him what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So the list of people that Jesus has appeared to on this first day is growing. Apparently at some point he also, he also appeared to Peter, Simon Peter, because they mention it right there in Luke 24, verse 34. It says he's appeared to Simon. Then verse 36, this is, um, you know, I always give background because some of you weren't here last week. Some of you might not have been here the week before. And I don't want to dive you right into a passage and you have no context. So the purpose of kind of reading through Luke and reading through some of these other parts of the other gospels is to kind of usher you into what we're going to study in John 20. So the last little piece, Luke 24, Luke gives us a great preview of what we're going to see when we get to John 20. So Luke 24, it says, as they were talking about these things. So everything that's happened throughout the day. The fact that the two guys on the road to Emmaus are now back. They're talking about everything that Jesus said. They're talking about all the prophecies. The fact that the Marys are there and the people who Jesus already appeared to are there. And they're with these disciples. You know, Peter has already seen Jesus. So now we're down to just maybe 10 of them that had not seen the risen Christ. And they're all in the room. Verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself, himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. So John 20, on the evening of that day, same scenario, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them 
and said to them, peace be with you. Same moment we just read in Luke 24. It's the evening of the first day. They're inside the room, the upper room. The door's bolted shut. They're all scared to death. Their master had just been executed, and they very easily could go through the exact same thing that just happened to him. Okay? They're, and really, the, the crazy thing is they're discussing. You can only imagine the conversation they're having. They're talking through all these things, you know, looking at what could happen, probably pulling out the Old Testament, looking through the Old Testament. Well, where does it say he's going to do this? Where does it say he's going to do this? And here's the thing. Jesus walks in the room and says, peace be with you. First words he said to most of the disciples since the cross, since they saw him in the garden. He walks in the room, he says, peace be with you. I think that's really encouraging to me, at least when I read it, is that the first words of Jesus to his disciples is peace be with you. It wasn't, it wasn't, where have you been? It wasn't, why did you scatter when they came in the garden? It wasn't, why did you not do something more? Why are you not out telling everybody what has happened? Why are you not doing this? Why are you not doing that? But he walks in, he says, peace be with you. All right, then verse 20, it said, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So it's all starting to come together. The testimonies of the other people are now making sense. And he goes, shows them his sides, and then he says, says it again in verse 21. Jesus said again, peace be with you. There probably was some kind of celebration. He's just like, guys, chill. I got something really important to tell you. So he says it again, peace be with you, verse 21. And here's what he says. I don't know what you would picture. You know, sometimes we look at people's last words on their deathbed as like really important words. Like that's just going to, you know, whatever they say right here, I'm going to have to take that and hold on to that for the rest of my life. Now, none of us have ever experienced the other side of it. When someone raises from the dead, their first words of what they say. I mean, Mary and Martha must have just through Lazarus. But other than that, none of us have experienced that. So the very first words that come out of his mouth, besides peace be with you, we would have to think are of utmost importance. Would you agree? I mean, this is what he says. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, I don't know what they expected him to say, but he starts with a really simple message. And essentially, it's the first declaration of the Great Commission. It's marching orders for all believers. We see the Great Commission, or a a similar commission in almost all the Gospels. You see it again in Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes on them. He tells them to go preach in the Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I mean, you see this commission in different parts of the Bible. Matthew 28 is probably the most common, the one that you've heard more often than not, Matthew 28. But here's what he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. For three years, you've watched my every move. For three years, you've been with me, you've learned from me, You've taught with me, I've taught you, you've studied with me, and now I'm sending you. I'm not going to be here. I'm going back to the Father. I am sending you. And if you watch the life of Jesus, it's like, as I have been sent, so I am sending you. And if you look at the life of Jesus and you think, well, how was he sent? What did Jesus do? You'd have to agree he was a man on a mission, right? He was, he was very specific in what he did. He had one goal. Glorify the Father in heaven. 
point people to his father. He didn't waste time doing a lot of the things we do. Right? He just, one focus. He was consumed with preaching and teaching and sharing about the kingdom and praying. And the point is not for you to feel bad because you went to the movies last night. All right? The point is just, the point is that we all, let me ask it this way. I think the takeaway is a very simple question. Do you believe that you're sent? Do you believe that you have the same commission that these disciples had? Is Matthew 28 and the other commissions, do you believe that applies to you? Do you live your life as one who is sent, as one who carries the good news of Jesus? And yeah, we're here to study, we're here to fellowship, we're here to serve, we're here to love each other, to care for each other. But at the end of the day, as believers in Christ, we have the message of salvation. No ifs, ands, or buts. We have the message of salvation and we're sent into our neighborhoods, we're sent into our places of work. Everybody in here has a different influence. Everybody in here has a different circle of friends. Everybody in here lives next to somebody else. You've all been placed where you're placed to carry that good news. And before you get nervous, because you've got to put yourself in these guys' shoes. Jesus was just crucified for the message. And now he walks into the room and he says, as I have been sent, basically as I have preached this message, as I have hung on the cross, so I am sending you. At least that's probably what's going through their mind when they're sitting there listening. Okay, so everything you just did, now you're sending me in the same way? So all of us in this room, like you can imagine if you were in their shoes, and let's not act like we're holier than them. If you were in their shoes, you can imagine what they're probably thinking. How am I going to have the courage to do that? I've been hiding in this room for three days. How am I going to have the courage to all of a sudden unbolt the door and go outside and share the good news? And what Jesus says is, he's like, I'm going to send you with my power. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Think back a few chapters. John 14, John 15, John 16, the upper room discourse as we know it. And Jesus over and over and over keeps saying to his disciples, when I go, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. When I go, I'm going to send my comforter. It's better for you if I go because the Spirit will come. That's, that's a mind-blowing thought in and of itself. I've been walking with you daily, but guess what? It's better for me if I go, because then the Spirit will come. Like that's, but he said that. He will lead you into all truth. He will teach you all things concerning me. He will empower you. He will comfort you. It's a big deal. The presence of Jesus is with all of us who are followers of Christ and empowers us to do his work. All right, now scholars go back and forth in this particular moment in the upper room in John 20 as to whether or not they actually received the Holy Spirit in that moment. And we're not going to debate going back and forth. I could read down parallel accounts of what people think and what these people think and whether they got the Spirit or not. The point is, they did get the Holy Spirit. Whether this was a temporary filling of the Holy Spirit and then they got the Holy Spirit for good at Pentecost, I don't think that's important. The important thing is they were going to receive the power of God. All right? I think he's pointing them to the day of Pentecost when they're going to receive the Spirit. That's what I think is happening. Okay? Jesus comes in the upper room. He tells them they're sent. He reminds them of the power they're about to get. And then in verse 23, he says something else that's kind of interesting. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. 
The same debate that just happened on the verse before, we could go down the same rabbit trails with this verse here. You know, did the disciples, are they, is he actually giving them the power to forgive sins? Well, we know no one has the power to do that except Christ. Okay, so what, what most scholars think is the, what 23 is saying. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Basically, go preach my message. If people believe the message of Jesus, their sins are forgiven. If people do not believe the message of Jesus, their sins aren't forgiven. That's what most scholars think he's saying here. It's just, go preach my message. If they believe, they're going to be forgiven. If they don't believe, they're not forgiven. That's the gospel. It's a piece of the gospel. So I'm sure that, you know, the disciples are taking all this in. They're trying to figure out, okay, when do we leave? When do we not leave? What do we have to do? What does this sin thing mean? Do I have to go to the ends of the earth? I mean, they haven't gotten the Matthew Great Commission yet. So they're probably trying to wrap their mind around it. Now, Thomas, our friend Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe unless I can put my hands here. I see the wounds. I can put my hands here. I will never believe. Good old Thomas, right? How many of you have ever said something stupid? How many of you have ever lied because your hands aren't up right now? Every hand should go up at one of those two questions, okay? Um, Here's the thing. Just be grateful, as I am, that your ill-advised comments over the years weren't written down in the Bible and memorialized for all to enjoy, okay? Be very thankful, because our poor boy Thomas here gets a bad rap, or even gets a nickname from it, Doubting Thomas, that's, that's kind of what we know him as, Doubting Thomas. For that one phrase, right there. All right, imagine if you got a nickname for every dumb thing you ever said. Some of y'all would have some pretty crazy nicknames. I wish I knew what they were, but some of you would have some pretty crazy nicknames. But here's the thing. You know, when you look at Thomas, we don't really know much about him. He's not mentioned that many times throughout the Gospels. We know he was a twin. Because they call him the twin. They call him Didymus, which means twin. The first mention we see of Thomas is in John chapter 11. I'm not going to dive into all the details of John 11, but that's back when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember that story? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He says one simple verse. There's one simple verse about, about Thomas, but I think it says a lot about him. All right, if you recall, Jesus had left Jerusalem. There was a lot of persecution. He had gone across the Jordan into Perea, and he was teaching and baptizing in the same area where John the Baptist was. You remember that? Same area where John the Baptist was. And a messenger comes to him, and the messenger says this. He says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Do you remember that? Remember when we preached through that? He whom you love is ill. And that's what, that's what the, the messenger said. And the disciples hear this, and they're like, well, are we going to go? Are we not going to go? I don't want to go back into persecution. You know, that's crazy. Why would we do that? Lord, there's no way you can go. You know, can't you heal him from a farm? They're probably talking down all these rabbit trails. And verse 16 is our first introduction to Thomas. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us all go that we may die with him. First words of Thomas recorded in scripture. Let us all go that we may die with him. It's a pretty bold statement. But I, 
I think it shows you how much Thomas loved Jesus, how much he loved the mission, the idea, the kingdom of God, how much he loved God. I mean, it tells you a lot about somebody when they say, I am willing to go and die with you. Because if you go there, you're probably going to get killed, and I'm going to go with you. Guys, let's round it up. Let's all go back to Jerusalem. It doesn't really matter what happens. Everybody there assumes he's going to get stoned. Jesus is going to get stoned. They're all trying to figure out how they can get out of it. And Thomas says, let's go die with him. Then the very next time you hear about Thomas is in John 14. They're all in the upper room. If you remember, Jesus had just washed his disciples' feet. He said, a new commandment I give you to love one another. He said, I'm going to go. I'm going away. And everybody's kind of panicking for a second. Nobody knows what's happening. They're all sitting in the upper room. And Jesus says this in John 14, 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So Jesus tells him, hey, I'm going to go away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And Thomas looks at him and goes, how do we know the way? Tell, tell us how we can get there. And then Jesus says one of the more popular verses in John, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty much our only interaction with Thomas. Those two verses. All right? It's really hard to label somebody doubting Thomas, skeptical Thomas, based on just this one instance, but he got memorialized in scripture. Everybody at least thinks of him as doubting Thomas. I think he was a passionate follower of Christ. He obviously was one of the 12 disciples, but I think he was scared to death that something was going to happen to his Savior. You can tell by the way, let's let's go with him. Let's go die with him. Jesus, where are you going? Why can't we come with you? I want to come with you. Like, I want to go to where you're going. When, when, Jesus, when something did happen to Jesus and he did hang on a cross, Thomas was probably devastated. This is obviously speculation. We don't know for sure. But I would imagine he was devastated, as they all were. Probably confused, saddened, didn't even want to be around anybody because he wasn't there. All the other disciples were there except Thomas. He was gone. And I'm not surprised he wasn't there. But when he finally joined them, verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Personally, I don't think it's doubt as much as it's deep sorrow and pain talking. Like I want to believe so bad that he's alive, but I don't want to be hurt again. I don't want to go through what I've gone through the last three days. The pain that's involved in my Savior being taken away from me. And unless I see the imprint of the nails, I'm not going to believe. Unless I can put my hands in, this, in his side in those wounds, I'm not going to believe. In verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, same thing, peace be with you. So after, eight days after this first incident... Jesus returns to the upper room. Eight days. Can you imagine what Thomas must have been going through for those eight days? I mean, sometimes we read this, and it's just a fact, okay? It's a historical fact. Jesus didn't come for eight days. Rewind for a second and just put yourself in Thomas's shoes. Eight days go by. An entire week 
Over a dozen people have seen Jesus, including every other disciple. And I'm sure by this point, maybe this is where he earned his name, Doubting Thomas, because I'm sure at some point during those eight days, doubt began to creep in. I mean, it's probably logical. Satan loves to sow the seeds of doubt in times of waiting. He loves to sow seeds of doubt in times of waiting. Some of the toughest times of your life will be those moments of perceived delay. And I say perceived delay because God's timing is perfect. But in our mind, it's not perfect. Right? I want them to act right now. I want this to happen right now. And so you have this perceived delay. And Lord, I've been in this valley for a long time. Why aren't you answering me? I need this job. I have to get this job. Our family can't go on much longer without this job. Why don't I have a job? I pray every day for a job. Why don't I have a job? Why aren't you answering? Right? I just want to be married. I just want to have a family. I mean, the, the list of things that we pray through, the list of things that happen, go on and on and on. And the whole time, Satan is trying to get you to doubt the goodness of God. Satan is trying to get you to doubt God's goodness. Don't let him do it. Know that God's ways are higher than our ways and that his timing is perfect. Perfect. Okay, so, t- so here we go. Eight days goes by, Jesus walks in the room. Peace be with you. Then he walks straight up to Thomas and he says in verse 27, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. First thing he says, walk straight into the room, Thomas. Eight days have gone by. He didn't say that, but come here. Feel, feel my hands. Feel my side. Right? This is what he says. Thomas reaches out. You can imagine if you were in his shoes, hand probably shaking as he's going to move over and touch the scars and the wounds of Jesus. And while we don't know exactly what Jesus' resurrected body was like, we do know the scars of his suffering were still there. He still had the scars of the cross. All right, and that's a pretty powerful ch- picture. Jesus, in his resurrected body, still bore the wounds and the scars of the cross. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now listen to this part. The punishment that brought us peace. His punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed his wounds we are healed his wounds his scars his wounds heal us Courtney and I used to help run a homeless ministry and over the years of running it you would get to know you know the guys pretty well and the people who were there pretty well Um, and each week they'd go through the food line and I'd put food on their plate and you'd look into their eyes and you, could, you literally could see the hurt. I know a lot of these guys have addictions, but in, in doing this, we probably did it for probably six years. And in doing it for six years, you realize that there's a story behind all of them. You know, sometimes we step back and we just look at the addiction, 
We're going to look at the pain that started that addiction in some cases. I mean, they're, they're, for every, every one of those guys was a little kid in a schoolyard running home for Thanksgiving, running home for Christmas, excited about the same thing that these kids are excited about, and somewhere along the way, life wounded them. I'm not justifying anything they're currently doing. I'm just saying somewhere along the way, life punched them in the face. Maybe they didn't have a network. Maybe they didn't have a group of people around to support them. They didn't know Christ. They didn't know that those wounds could be cast on him and cast your cares upon him. Just didn't know that. And so they went to other things to find peace, other things for satisfaction and to help them deal with it. And before long, it consumed their lives. And those of you who've ever worked in homeless ministries know the same idea. You just want to walk up to that line as, they're, as you're serving food and you're looking at them. And some of them have physical scars. Some of them are just emotional scars. And you want to grab them out of line and say, come here, put your plate down. Walk, walk over here with me for a second. And you want to wrap your arms around them and just say, Jesus died to heal your pain. He died by his wounds. Your wounds are healed. His wounds heal your wounds. Do you believe that? Do you truly believe that? Do you believe the wounds of Christ bring healing and peace? Not only now, I mean, not only for eternity, but for, for this present time. You fix your eyes above the sufferings of this world, like Paul says in Romans 8, and you keep your eyes fixed on him. Or as Hebrews 12 says the same thing. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. All right, Thomas reaches out, touches the scars of Jesus. His life is forever changed. He's like, Wow. Like this, my Lord, my God, it's you. Everybody in this room has wounds. Some of them are deep and some of them are painful. I listen to some of your stories and can do nothing but thank God for your faith. Like I I truly wonder where I would be if I had walked in your shoes. Like I just... But here's the thing, even though you bear the scars of your past, they don't determine your future in Christ. The scars of your past do not determine your future in Christ. And in fact, in most cases, the scars of your past and the story of your pain will actually draw people closer to Christ. That's literally the way it works. We live in a fallen world and you're not going to get out of this world unscathed. I promise you. You're not going to get out of this world unscathed. All right, but my encouragement to you today is to use, and it's easier said than done, I get that, but to use the scars of your past to point people to Jesus. I know it's tough. I know it hurts. But Jesus used his pain and his suffering to point the world to the Heavenly Father. That's what he did. The scars are still there. My sister sent me a quote the other day, and this is what it said. It said, you cannot claim victim and victory at the same time. You cannot claim victim and victory at the same time. I'm not saying life's not going to punch you in the face. I'm not saying you're not going to hurt. I'm not saying you're not going to weep. I'm not going to say you're not going to experience pain. But we as believers find victory in the resurrected body of Christ. That's, that's what happens. We find victory in the resurrected body of Christ. And do you know that one day we'll stand before Jesus and all of our wounds will be gone. All of our wounds will be gone. All of our scars will be gone. One day all this pain, all this suffering will be gone 
and permanently healed. But the crazy thing is, his scars will still be there. You ever thought about that? I mean, we don't know if at some point they're going to go away, but we will see the scars of Christ. We will see the wounds of Christ. Adrian Rogers said, the only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars on the resurrected body of Jesus. Adrian Rogers. So Thomas touches these scars and he said, Lord, it's you. Verse 28, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are all the future generations of the church who will never be able to do, Thomas, what you just did, and they're still going to believe. Blessed are all the thousands of years of the church. Paul tells the church at, at Corinth in 2 Corinthians, he says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. History tells us that Thomas would carry the gospel probably further than any other disciple. He would be empowered by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost like the rest, and at some point he would leave, and he would go trek over hundreds of miles of desert. You know, picture going, going east from, um, from Israel, and he would trek through probably hundreds of miles of de- desert, sail over the west, the rough seas, and eventually he would land in a small town in southern India called Karungalath. We're going to call it that, Karungalath. Um, he would begin to preach to the Indian people. He would establish a church there that would later be called Martoma after Thomas. And I was talking to Arun who was in here in the first service who's from India. And he said the city he is from is actually where that church is located today. There's actually still a church called, there's two churches. One's called St. Thomas and one's called Martoma. And it's still there. One of the churches they believe was actually established by this doubting Thomas in the country of India. And he would eventually be speared. He would actually be martyred for his faith in India. They would drive a spear right through him in India as he went to proclaim the gospel. And as you know, all the disciples, probably except for John, died a martyr's death. Right? They walked their commission. They pursued God. They carried the good news of the resurrection. Thank God they didn't keep it inside the upper room. They took their commission. They took it to the ends of the earth. They went, I mean, can you imagine trying to travel to India from Israel back at the turn of like 2,000 years ago? I've been to India three times. It's tough enough getting there today, but can you imagine doing it then? I mean, that's, that's the, the commission that they had, the belief that they had that the good news of the resurrection of Christ was that important that the whole world needed to hear it. And all the disciples would do that. John wraps up by saying, in verse 30, 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So how about you? Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross, suffered in our place, and rose again three days later? John says throughout his book, he says, this is written essentially for the world. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was written to all of mankind. 
It was one of the last books that was written, and it was literally written just to put a bow on the other Gospels, pick out very specific stories that would help us as future generations believe that what he said was true. It was written to challenge us, it was written to convict us, it was written to equip us, um, and it was written, I think, to encourage us to proclaim the Gospel everywhere we go. So that one day a tribesman in Africa can look up at the heavens and say, there's a God up there who loves me. And a woman in Saudi Arabia who has no rights knows there's a God who loves her. You know, the God of her country died years ago. Our God resurrected and sits in heaven. Okay, as we close, I want to I show you a video. Um, it tells the story of two missionaries. And these two missionaries, is kind of the idea of these two missionaries from the first story I told at the very beginning. This little missionary movement in Central Europe back in the 1700s. And it's the story of two guys who left for missions during this little movement that happened, this prayer movement that happened. My hope is, is that it encourages you and it challenges you to keep your focus where it needs to be. All right, it's not, this is not like some big push for a missions conference. I'm not trying to guilt you all into going on a mission trip. I, I literally hope that you walk away today knowing that we have a commission, that we have a mission. And our mission is, whether we're going down to Land of Lakes, going to Jake's house, or we're going to Africa, that we know the good news of the gospel. And so everywhere you go, every step you take, every place you go, reflect Christ. Show the world who he is and show the world that he loves them. All right, let's watch this video and then I'll come back up at the end. It was the early 1700s when John Leonard Dober and David Richmond first heard about the island. They were at church on an ordinary Sunday morning okay. and the pastor was speaking about a place in the West Indies where there had never been any gospel witness. He told of a man who lived on an island who was an atheist slave owner with about 3,000 slaves, all of whom would live and die there without a chance to ever hear of Jesus. Deeply disturbed by what they heard, he
the video is by a worship leader named Matt Papa. You can Google it and see the rest of the video if you'd like. But here's, as I mentioned before, here's why we show it. Um, you know, as a pastor and a shepherd of people in this church, along with Jake, we're all going to stand before God one day. We just, we want our, our work, if you will, while we're on earth to be worthy of what he did on the cross. Like, I want every ounce of our church just to be focused on him, to bring him praise. And again, hear me. Go to football games, have fun, do life. But while you're doing life, point people to Jesus. That would be my prayer. Work your day jobs. We need, I'm bivocational. I still have a day job. You all know that. Work your work, do your jobs, but while you're there, point people to Jesus. All right? I love you guys. Let me pray for us real quick. Don't go anywhere. Peter and Juliet got, got us thinking about dedication, so we're going to dedicate my daughter Isabella here right after I'm done, so don't go nowhere. Um, let me pray. Heavenly